Good morning, church. How you doing? Happy Super Bowl Sunday. If you haven't met, my name is Mitch Botsford, one of the pastors on staff. Um, Super Bowl Sunday is a very big deal for me, and it has nothing to do with football. Um, Super Bowl Sunday six years ago, uh, I found out that I needed to marry my now wife. Uh, we were dating long distance. She decided uh, on Sunday at like noon, she was going to drive from Fresno to be with me for Super Bowl or like 15 minutes of it. And then she got in her car and drove back to Fresno. And I was like, gosh dang, <laughs> I think this is it. So Super Bowl Sunday is a big deal for me. Uh, but I'm going to watch more golf today than football. So if you need a Bible, ushers are in the aisles. They can get one to you. We're going to be in Numbers 21 this morning. Very excited about this story and what I've learned this week. Um, we are, we've been doing this 21 thing for the year 2020. We were doing a podcast, Josh and I. We're trying in this coronavirus time to reach out and communicate even more so with students. So we started up a podcast. We were talking the other day on it, and I do not at all, Josh, I tried to think about this more. I do not at all remember my 21st birthday, like eight years ago. And you might think you know why, but you're wrong, um, because I have never drank in my life. So the obvious answer is not my answer. I don't, I can't remember it. I tried to look back in Instagram and be like, what did I do? What was happening? I don't remember. So I'm with a lot of people in that just for different reasons, I guess. But Numbers 21 is where we're at, and uh, it's crazy. Maybe like a lot of people's 21 might be. Um, this story is incredible. Let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this story. Uh, we thank you for the plan that you have had, the plan that you made happen. God, would uh, you teach us, would you grow us and challenge us this morning as we study that plan all the way back here in Numbers 21, in Jesus' name, amen. Numbers 21, verse 4 says, Then they, the Israelites, journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged along the way. Okay, a little bit of context. You have for us this morning Moses and the Israelites wandering in the desert. Just the chapter before, you have Moses making his mistake because the people are complaining that there's no water for them. He hits the rock with his staff instead of speaking to it. Now he's not, like most of the Israelites, allowed to enter into the promised land, and they are wandering the desert. They just previously, in the verses before, have asked the king of Edom, hey, can we take the shortcut through your land? We'd like to just not go the long way around, take the shortcut. I find this very interesting for a people that all they're going to do is wander. And they get discouraged because they have to wander the long way. And like when they get to where they're going, they're just going to have to wander more until they die. But they're like, man... This is a bummer. We can't go the short way to wander to our deaths. I don't know. Um, 
The Israelites, man, they're crazy. So verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Talking about the manna that falls from heaven like dew on the ground. Quickly, the Israelites, as you and I unfortunately do, uh, we take what we've prayed for, we take what we've asked for, we take what is a blessing in our life, and we click, quickly turn those things into burdens. Like, so often. God, I need a job. Would you please just bless me with a job? And you're like, man, I hate my job. This boss, this, this, this. What? Right? Or, I don't know, we do it with so many things. And you've got to think, man, these Israelites in Egypt are like, man, it would be nice not to be slaves. And now they're like, man, we just, it'd be great to be slaves again in Egypt where there was better food and there was water. I'm like, yo, the chapter before you got water, I don't understand. And, and maybe the way that we look at this story, look at them like that, unfortunately, sometimes maybe the way we're looked at, maybe by other people, other Christians, or even maybe by God, of like, I, I, you got that. I gave it to you. That's what you, asked, you prayed for for like seven years, eight years, ten years, whatever it is, or maybe you're still praying for something. Okay, so here we go, verse 6. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. You could stop right there, and that would be like punishment enough for me, right? Like, I do not like snakes. We have, I have a neighbor who, two neighbors actually, one had the biggest reptile, giant lizard thing in their backyard when we moved in five years ago into this like condominium complex in Escondido. No joke, like six months later, there's a thing, there's a paper on the mailboxes. Our giant dragon got out. <laughs> awesome. Never been found. Still wandering the neighborhood. Um, and then people moved in up above us, and they bring their reptiles out, and their snakes and lizards, and sit them in the sun. Watch. Here we go. Fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. Therefore... The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Okay, this story just continues to get crazier and crazier. Not to mention the next verse just says, now the children of Israel moved on. Okay, that's the Old Testament for you. Just like, let me sneak this craziness in and we go on. One of my favorite stories comes a couple chapters later and it's um, Balaam's donkey and this donkey just like talks to him. I love this. Later on, these are three of my like favorite, go I like stories where I'm like, hey, go find this, especially to youth. 
You know that um, one of the disciples streaks through the Bible, like running with no clothes on, streaks through the Bible? It's a bigger deal when football's happening, but not this year. So go find that, right? I like to tell students, go find that because that happens in the Bible. Uh, fiery serpents, talking donkey. My favorite is these kids making fun of Elijah or Elisha. I get them mixed up. They make fun of him because he's bald. So he curses them, and a mama bear comes out of the woods and kills the kids. It's in the Bible. This story, though, yeah, I've read it. I've known about it. I heard it. And my dad's like, hey, I want you to read it again. I want you to study it. I want you to look for a couple things. And uh, the, the, the verses just jumped off the page this week, and I couldn't get enough. Um, my dad described so well for the staff on our Wednesday staff meeting that usually on Wednesday we're preparing for a weekend. You have too much material. This is definitely the way I try to study. Is like I want to learn as much as I can and then allow the Lord hopefully to just whittle it down. As you can't possibly speak or teach. You could spend, we could spend the whole year on this passage alone and there's still be meat on the bone. But here's what I learned. Before we get to that, however, here's the crazy, one more crazy thing just to add. Actually, there's a few more. This symbol of a snake on a pole is still used to represent medicine to this very day. Like you see an ambulance go by, most likely there's a snake on a stick on the side of the ambulance. There's actually two symbols. Now, secular would like to say that these are based in Greek mythology. Okay? But Greek mythology just stole it from Scripture. And if you really study and if you really dive in, and want to study this symbol of medicine, they will acknowledge at the very end, in fact, thousands of years before Greek mythology, yes, a snake did show up on a pole in a, in a way of healing to represent medicine in Numbers 21 in the Jewish Bible, okay? But, right, so you have these two things. You have one is this caduceus. It's a, it's a stick with two snakes wrapped around it. It actually doesn't mean anything medical at all, but the uh, American Army Medical Corps decided they wanted two snakes on their stick instead of one because that's the American thing to do. Two is better than one. But more accurately, it's this rod of Asclepius that is one, actually not accurately because that's all fake, but one snake on a pole still represents medicine today. If you work in the medical field, I hope you know that. If you don't, now you do. Tell your friends. It's awesome. Oh, hey, guess what? Like, it's, it's sometimes embroidered on your scrubs or on your jacket. It's, I love, I love the Lord, okay? It's so cool. Have you noticed, though, that there seems to be this move or this transition as we, as we learn more or as science discovers more? We're just simply discovering, like, more about God and more about what he's done. He's like, I'm just going to throw these little things in there. Like, all the way back in Numbers 21, there's going to be this symbol that you're going to use for medicine. It's going to come from me. Here's the crazy thing, though. The Israelites quickly go from, hey, this is healing, and this is God sent this to save us from <laughs> these snakes. They quickly turn to, well, we're not going to worship God anymore. We're just going to worship this image of a snake on a pole. Like, it was the healing. The Second Kings Chapter 18, verse 4, King Hezekiah, one of the 
best kings in Israel's history, says in verse 4, he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces. He specifies, right? We, we tore down a bunch of stuff, but let me specifically say this one we tear down. In pieces, the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehustin. We have this problem where we quickly make something or even make things that God has blessed us with, we turn them into idols. And I think quite possibly it is that that we do and we take what God has blessed us with or this thing that God has brought into our life to fix our situation and then we start living just for that thing and it causes this disconnect and it causes frustration and it causes animosity between us and God because we make something God instead of him that he blessed us with. So Hezekiah here has to tear it down for the people to bring their eyes back on to the Lord. Jewish tradition teaches that it was not the looking to the snake but looking up looking up to this snake on a pole, looking past, they would say, to heaven, that actually is where the healing came from. The craziest thing to me, and I think something that is quickly overlooked in this passage, is the Israelites asked for one thing specifically, and they did not receive it. They said, Moses, pray to God, ask him to take away the serpents. Did not happen. He did not take away the serpents. In fact, he said, make another one, put it on a pole, and if you look at it, you'll be healed. Further inspection and study, and my dad tipped me off to this, at the original text, there are actually two words for snakes used. The first one, fiery snakes, we don't know why they're called fiery. Maybe because of their color. Maybe because the bite, uh, the venomous bite that they had that would lead to death caused a fiery sensation. Or maybe, we'll look at in a second, but the first word used for snake is this hanasim or hanah, whatever. Hanahasim, I don't know. Okay? That, it just means snake. It's just, this is a snake. Okay? So God sent these snakes, that word. Now, the next one, he says, Moses, I want you to make a snake. Word change. This is the word serap, S-A-R-A-P. It does not mean snake. It means fiery one. I want you to make a fiery one. And then it goes on to say, and Moses made a snake. Back to the original word snake that just means snake. And he put it on a pole. Why? This word serap is the singular Form the singular congregation of the word seraphim. This is mind-blowing. The word seraphim only shows up one time in Scripture. Isaiah 6, verse 2. We'll start in verse 1, but turn to Isaiah 6. This, this is so poignant, but incredible and mind-blowing. In verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, this is Isaiah speaking, the Lord sitting on a throne. We could spend an entire 
lifetime. Studying and remembering and resting in the fact that God is sitting on his throne. Actually, Scripture would go on to say that heaven is his throne and that the earth is his footstool. He's kicking back watching the game. He's chilling. Relax. In this podcast that Josh and I do, we did an episode on authority because students struggle with that. We all do, but we like to say that kids are worse at it than we might be. Probably not true, but students struggle with authority. And uh, we also had this massive authority change in our land in the last few weeks. Uh, And these students really don't have a say or a vote in any of that. So we wanted to talk about it scripturally. Josh and I recorded an episode. We looked at each other and we said, we got to do it again. We recorded it again. I was driving home and I texted Josh, we need to do it again. Didn't like it. Wasn't right. Didn't spend enough time on what we should have spent time on. And it was simply this, that in fact, authority is a blessing in our life. Proven by God, the ultimate authority is a blessing in our life. Now, Here's the thing about his authority, unlike anyone else's authority. Whether you believe in him as ultimate authority or not does not change his position. The Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Ultimate authority. He's the boss. And he's just sitting in heaven, kicking his feet up on the earth. Not worried, not stressed. You have this amazing image, Isaiah 6, of the throne room of heaven sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood, here's our word, seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Seraphim, literally translated, fiery ones. They have one job. We get more of a picture of them. We assume because of the likeness of the description. Actually, we get a more detailed description, we believe, in Revelation chapter 8, when John gets to see the throne room in heaven. He describes for us four angelic beings with six wings that do the same thing. One looks like an eagle. One looks like a lion. One looks like a man. They're crazy, and they're covered head to toe, wing to wing, to wing to wing to wing to wing in eyes. And they have one job, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Here in Isaiah, they say, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. Later on in Revelation 4, they say, who was and is and is to come. Now, when they say the whole earth is filled with his glory here in Isaiah 6, it's the same exact thing that God actually says to Moses when the people of Israel don't want to go into the promised land because they're scared. So he, can, he condemns them to where we find them in our text, Numbers 21, to wander the desert until they die, except for the ones that believed. Moses included in the ones that believed, but then the chapter before, Numbers 20, he hits the rock instead of talks to it, so now he doesn't get to go in. But the Lord God says to Moses, as long as I live, interesting, as long as I live, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. 
Numbers 14. And it's like, surprise, seraphim at the end, they're like, um, he always lives, who was and is and is to come. Scripture says if we don't, the rocks will cry out. If we don't declare the glory of the Lord, that the rocks will cry out. All to say this in Numbers 21. The cure for your ailments, the cure for your problem, the cure for the snakes is a heavenly solution. Yes, you're going to make an image, but I want you to make an image like this, pointing to a heavenly cure. Okay, It's not a snake that's going to save you from the snakes. Make a fiery one like in heaven, pointing people to heaven, looking past like the Jewish teachers would teach in tradition, looking past the snake, pointing you to heaven. Hence, the word change for snake. This heavenly one gets better. John 3, verse 14 says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Did you know this? That right before John 3.16, this bronze serpent is talked about? Like, like right before our favorite verse in all of Scripture, we talk about this bronze serpent. Here's what I can't get over in Numbers 21. This is, for me, possibly the most detailed and amazing foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. It's incredible. And what the Jewish teachers taught based on tradition the New Testament now confirms that even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's double down on that. 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This image of the snake on a pole is this salvation from these snakes. We are quick and easy to equate snakes with sin in Scripture. Thank you, Genesis 3. But like Genesis 3, Numbers 21, the snakes are not removed. And so accurately to the gospel, it has to be your looking upon, your gazing, your looking to heaven personally for you to be saved. You have to have your own relationship with Jesus. No one can do it for you. You're not going to heaven because you go to church. You're not going to heaven because you're family. You're not going to heaven because you're American or whatever the heck we want to put in there. Do you know Jesus? End of story. Do you look upon him? Very detailed. Incredible. And you have this transition that happens in the Old Testament from you need to pay for your sins to someone is going to pay for your sins for you, this temple and priest model, all funneling and directing and pointing us to Jesus coming and making the only needed and the final payment, this perfect sacrifice, pointing to that. But you have this difference for you and me now that we don't need to pay for our sins. Our sins have been paid for. We operate from a different position. They do not live from a position of victory. They're wandering the desert until they die. We have been bought. Our sins have been forgiven. The crazy thing about communion, every time I take it, is that I can't get over is that Jesus died for the sins that I would commit after I enter into a relationship with him. 
Like, I really didn't know any better before I knew Jesus. Now I know better, and I'm going to still go sin. And then, like, every month I'm going to remember what he did for me and that, yes, even though he knew I was going to do that, he loves me and wanted me and bought me anyways. This redeemed word is crazy, that you were his, and we sinned, we left him, we walked away from him, and then he bought you back. He redeemed you his. And that we need to, like they did, but better now for us, look to him. Just him. That Moses is not the cure for them. He made it, but it's not the physical. It's the looking past. It's the spiritual. Say, Mitch, it's okay. Like, yeah, it's a good, crazy story. There's some gospel in there. It gets better. Because at first I'm like, you know, it's just, I can't get over, I don't like snakes. I don't like snakes scripturally. I don't like snakes physically. Why does it have to be a snake on the pole? 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us why it needed to be a snake and why so accurately it is a snake on the pole. It says this, for he, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Crazy. That in fact, the thing that is ailing them is what, and for us, that's sin. The thing that we cannot defeat on our own, that these people, they could not defeat these snakes. Nothing that they could do except looking upon, looking past to heaven. That God would send his son to leave this amazing throne room in heaven, not just to become his creation, but to become sin. This perfect image. Yes, the thing that is ailing them is the thing that they look to. This he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Why? So that we could be redeemed, so that we could be paid for. So this thing that we cannot handle on our own, sin, our debt that leads to death, could be wiped out. Here's the crazy thing. Those snakes were not taken away. Here's the deal, though. This sacrifice, this Jesus on the cross sacrifice, boom, wipes out all the snakes, wipes out all the sin. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, not the Christian, not you or me, for God so loved the world, that people will never choose him, and he chose to take away their sin, wiped it all out. Better than what happened in the Old Testament. Better than this old sacrificial system. Better than this snake on a pole that still represents medicine. Incredible. I only have one. I have two snake stories. One's I just saw at the time was the biggest snake in the world. It was in Thailand. And they just keep it in this box and they like shoot it with horse tranquilizers every once in a while. So it doesn't do anything. But we rode elephants right near there. It was really cool. My other story is sketchier. Um, we used to live in Rancho Bernardo. I think I was five at the time, kindergarten-ish. And there was this awesome, like, system of paths that was out before, like, behind our house that we would walk. And it kind of, the creek ran into the, it used to be water over there on the east side of the 15 for Lake Hodges. Um, and we would walk down there all the time. And we had this hound dog that we would bring. Her name was Blue because she was a blue tick coon hound. We're really good at naming things. And so... We adopted her from next door. Somebody else gave her that name. Um, and we were walking with Blue, and Blue was walking in the front. We were going back to the house, and we were going up a path. And we had, you know, like all the dead mustard, California mustard on either side. Narrow path, we're walking. And it was me, and my sister was with my dad right behind me. And Blue, all of a sudden, turns 90 degrees across the path. The story 
was crazy. Like, I was thinking about this this week. I'm like, this is crazy. Across the path, and our first reaction is, you stupid dog. We're trying to get home. But then we actually lifted our eyes, looked a little bit further down the path, coiled up rattlesnake. Praise the Lord for the dog. Across the path. And what does my dad do, you know, being the awesome guy that he is? He starts throwing rocks at the snake. I don't know what the plan is. <laughs> Maybe just to, like, scare it off, but, like, I'm like, let's go the other way. Um, take me the long way home, like, unlike the Israelites. Uh, he ends up throwing big enough rocks, landing on the snake's head, kills it. And we cut off the rattler and take it home, and it was on the coffee table for, like, ten years. <laughs> it was crazy. But it's just amazing. I was like, the parallels between what I'm studying and this story are unreal. Finally, this. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, you, me, Christian, since we are surrounded by such, so great, that's my Awana kicking in, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, for who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, looking unto Jesus. Let me boil it down as we prepare for communion. Numbers 14, God said, as long as I live, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Isaiah 6, 2, holy, holy, holy. These angels just declare it back and forth to each other. Revelation would tell us that when they say it, all the elders in heaven bow down at the throne of God. And they just keep worshiping and saying the same thing over and over and over. What am I trying to say? I could not get past the gospel in Numbers 21. We cannot get past the gospel in our life. We are called to take up our cross daily. We cannot move beyond our need for the gospel every single day. And we need to operate from this position of, hey, our debt has been paid. We've already won. That has to, Paul would say, it is your reasonable service now, Christian, Message translation puts it this way. It is only logical that if you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you would live your life differently. Question, Christian, today is what are we living for as a Christian? Because far too often, we just want him to change a bunch of stuff in our life. And we won't acknowledge or accept that he has made the biggest change we could ever want or ever need in our life. That we now, if, if we are Christians, if we believe in this gospel that Jesus came, died on a cross for our sins, for everyone's sins, so that we might know God, so that we might one day get to be in heaven, and, and it would even be elevated beyond that. said, no, 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 it's not just that. Look at the story of the prodigal son. It's not just that. It's not like, yeah, you can come home and be a slave because I've bought you and I've paid for you and paid your debts. No, no, no. Hey, you are adopted into the family of God. You represent the ultimate authority. 
Who cares who's in charge? Our God, our Father, the one who's in charge of everything is chilling in heaven. Jesus says, I'm making it ready for you. That has to change the way you live your life. Because here's the question, church. Are we filling the earth with his glory? Or are we wanting him to fill our lives with our glory? And the things that we want and the things that we want done differently. And the things that we want changed. And then when he does them, we whine and we complain about those. You know what Paul says that it blows my mind? He says, you know what I would change? I would be where you are, reader. I would love to be in those end days. And we're like, man, you know what? This would be nice or that would be nicer if. No, you know what's nice? Is I am a son. You are a son, a daughter of the Most High. Are we filling the whole earth with his glory. And if we're not today and we're here tomorrow, we get another chance to do so. Let's go with the gospel. We're on a mission. We're on a business trip here. We are not home. And we got to live like that. God, I love you so much. I thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the author and the finisher that you planned all the way back. Numbers 21, even further back in scripture, you had this plan. So detailed. You knew every detail from the very beginning. The scripture tells us that you were thinking about me before the foundations of the earth were, was even laid. And you authored and you finished. You made it happen. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to pay. I just need to look unto your son. And it is only through him that I am able to be with you, God. I cannot wait until my faith becomes sight and we get to be in heaven with you. But until that day comes, would my worship grow? Would my living for you grow? Would I get better at because I am not the best at taking up my cross daily and following you, would I fill this earth with your glory, not mine? Would I not be quick to make myself God or myself authority because you have every right to be authority in my life. You made me. You bought me. You have amazing plan for my life. God, would I surrender it each and every day to you? Not once, but continually. And would this communion be such a reminder of that need. In Jesus' name, amen.